Welcome to Profit Boss Radio. I'm your host, Hillary Hendershot, certified financial planner and owner of every money mistake you can imagine. I now run a successful financial planning and wealth coaching firm. I'm here to share with you what I learned turning failure into financial freedom. Profit Boss Radio is all about how women like us are authoring our own lives, rewriting the rule book of money and running incredible businesses. If you like this show, hit subscribe, share it with a friend and leave us that five-star review. Are you ready, Profit Boss? Let's do this. Hey, it's Hillary Hendershot. Real quick before we get to the show, I want to share how you can get my comprehensive and virtual wealth coaching course for business owners. Since I started sharing how I multiplied my wealth from more than $500,000 in debt to accumulating over eight figures in wealth through neuroplasticity, changing my brain about money, lots of you have been reaching out to find out how you can do that too. So this podcast is loaded with lots of great financial advice from both myself and my guests, but I'll confess, Profit Boss Radio isn't in Intended to be a comprehensive or done for you system. That's why I decided to create the money blueprint for business owners. If you want one-on-one access to me, plus all my strategies for learning to command and manifest money, plus your own personalized plan for your business and personal finances, conveniently packaged up into a one-year transformational course, visit hillaryhendershot.com forward slash MBP. The link's in the show notes for all the details. All right, Profit Boss, today I have with me Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez. She is a friend and writer and financial expert. She covers women, money, power, and ambition. She's the host of Real Simple Magazine's Money Confidential podcast, the founder of Statement Cards, a line of greeting cards that celebrates milestones beyond marriage and motherhood, which we're going to talk more about, and the co-founder of Statement Event, dedicated to connecting the dots between gender equity and financial power. Stephanie, welcome to Profit Boss Radio. Well, thank you for having me here. (laughs) Uh, Here's a quote from your Instagram. I'm not sure if it was your Instagram or Twitter. It really touched me and it moved me. And I'd like to start with it. Women's achievements have changed, but our traditions and ways of showing up for the women in our lives haven't. Rarely are we as excited and supportive of women's personal and professional milestones as we are with their pregnancies and engagements. It's close to home. Yeah. Uh, And it's actually like really like, like, cause I, I found, I saw myself in that statement and I consider myself, you know, a feminist, like an active one. (laughs) So how much do you think of that, that tendency to say, oh my gosh, congratulations on your engagement and your wedding and your baby is just muscle memory. And how much of it do you think is truly Neanderthal? Uh, I think it's socialization. I don't fault anybody for having that instinctive, oh my goodness, congratulations reaction. We have been literally programmed to do this. The first thing that you say to somebody when they get engaged is like, oh my gosh, let me see your ring. Oh my gosh, let me, uh, tell me about uh, whatever, the proposal. And, And there is so much inbuilt excitement because we know what to do. The save the date comes, we put it on the fridge, you get ready for a bridal shower, you look for a registry, there is an info infrastructure of support that you plug into. So it's as much as even I want to be as excited for my girlfriend who's finishing her PhD, the fact is because there isn't just this culture and tradition of support that, you know, is step one, step two, step three, the questions you ask, the things you do, et cetera, uh, when that happens, I feel 
at a loss. I'm just like, congratulations. And I feel ridiculous because this is somebody's life's work (laughs) and like something they probably sacrificed for, for decades, not just, you know, getting married. And actually the, the thing that kind of inspired this sentiment in myself was actually my own experience of getting married. I got engaged and people congratulated me and showed up for me and supported me in ways I had never experienced in my entire life, despite, you know, starting a business, publishing a book, these things that really took effort and I felt were accomplishments. But this thing I did, and it's not saying getting married wasn't important to me. It was, but it wasn't necessarily an accomplishment in my view. Well, no, being a successful in a relationship is the accomplishment. (laughs) Correct. Correct. (laughs) Exactly. And I just felt this bizarre disconnect of like, wow, I'm only seen and valued as a wife you know, more than anything else in my entire life. Um, and I, I find with talking to my girlfriends, it's the same thing who are our wives or mothers or single. It's just like, why is that the thing that is like the center point for how people define me, not right. what I'm, my goals or my ambitions or what I've achieved or whatever else it is. You know, it's a good point. Actually, I'm thinking back to a cousin of mine got her PhD. And while I was blown away, honestly, a little intimidated, I mean, and she's like 15 years younger than me. She got her PhD, was in a I think it's chemical engineering or something really intimidating. And I really had no idea like, what had she been through? What does that actually mean that she knows? What's now possible for her? What's, mm-hmm. what, what pathway has she been on and where is she headed? I mean, I, I know it's good things and it's a high trajectory, but it's like, I don't know what else to say besides, wow, congrats. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's probably how people feel when you talk about your business, right? It's right. like, there is just, we haven't created all of these kinds of rituals and social gatherings and support systems for basically anything else other than like these two major milestones that only define us as women in relation to other people, not in relation to ourselves. And I find that troubling. And I think that I'm trying to talk about it because I don't think it's about taking anything away from the way we celebrate weddings and children. I think we should celebrate those things. I just think we need to think more expansively about what we celebrate, how we celebrate, and what it means to really see and support and value somebody for all the things they do in their life. And I have found that as my career has gotten more, you could say, monetarily successful, that many friends have actually fallen away that they say things like, don't forget the little people. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? (laughs) What does that mean? Or they just don't call anymore. They say, well, I can't relate to that. And, Mm. um, in my past, I admit, and this was a long time ago, but before I had a modicum of success, I was extremely envious of other people's Mm. success. So beyond not just saying congratulations for a promotion or a financial milestone being passed, I think I secretly was jealous. And I think jealousy is like, you want to take that away from them. It's like, I wish you didn't have that. Cause I wouldn't feel so bad about myself. I had to, I consciously chose to alter that it was like, I'm not going to be that person anymore. Like that's not how I'm going to be about that. How has that been for you? Yeah. I always think my instinct as a kid was to 
be jealous. And I think part of that just came from being hyper competitive in a way. My hyper competitiveness made me view everything as a zero sum game. Yep. And so somebody else's win was my loss. And in my 20s and 30s, I think it was a process of reframing things of, okay, like the world is incredibly expansive and somebody else winning in my experience and the reality of my experience is usually also a win for me too, because yeah. they're my friends. I know them, you know, I, I really do believe in the rising tide lifting all boats. And so, yeah, there is certainly some, maybe to your point about the Neanderthal brain of like, okay, zero sum, this person gets to eat means I don't get to eat. But, you know, generally speaking, when we're talking about the things we're talking about, you know, mm -hmm. business opportunities, monetary opportunities. There is just so much of it out there that I in no way believe that somebody else's win is my loss. And in fact, I believe kind of the opposite. And I'm inspired. I'm inspired by you saying, okay, my business is doing well. I moved to Puerto Rico. You know, this, this is a wonderful thing. And so I, I, I want that to be celebrated. And I think that creates a culture, not just that's, that's positive, but of opportunity. If I see what's possible for you, I know what's possible for me. It does kind of feel like in the gender-based ways that we're talking about where it's different for women than men, it does kind of feel like the last vestiges of, of patriarchy. And I've said before on this show, sometimes women are the most guilty of yes. beating each other down with that caveman bat, right? So yeah. you've talked about this term, the ambition penalty. So we're still in the same vein. How do you define the ambition penalty and where do you see it in your own life? Yeah, so... It's hard for me to define it because I have spent so much time getting into the nitty gritty of the research that kind of made me come up with this term. But basically the idea is when women express their ambition or take action on their ambition, whether it's to pursue a leadership role or uh, advance in their careers or ask for a raise, there is generally some kind of pushback that results in a tangible penalty, whether it's a rescinded job offer, whether it's a loss of um, social capital and therefore being like labeled unlikable, uh, which can then manifest in being passed over for future promotional opportunities, which can manifest in being more likely to be denied a raise. Um, so these are just some of the scientific things that have been studied just showing, especially for women of color, you know, when they do ask for a raise, they are less likely than equivalently successful, equivalently performative men, white men to get the raises they've requested. And so really what I'm trying to get at with this idea of the ambition penalty is that so much of, you know, what we tell women and understandably so to do to close things like the wage gap or the wealth gap uh, is to ask for more, to lean in and, and to do these things. And, and yes, that stuff is important. But I think what I'm getting at with the ambition penalty is saying it's actually a little bit more complicated because the fact is we are trying to do these things like ask for more in advance and seek leadership positions in a world that still penalizes women for their ambition, no matter how much they ask, no matter what context generally they're in. And so I think it's about making sure that when we talk about negotiation, we also talk about bias. We also talk about patriarchy. And to your point, both men and women perpetrate these things. So I think it's just about bringing more nuance to the conversation. Do you feel like you've been victim of the ambition penalty? I think I have done 
okay. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I think the reason why I've been able to skirt a lot of it is because I work for myself. So one of the things that I've been interviewing a lot of women who have had this experience. And one of the things that really blew me away was I spoke to a lot of women who had job offers rescinded when they negotiated salaries, which is like mind blowing to me that this is happening in 2021. And I so easily found scores of women that this happened to. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's wild. Um, (laughs) And I think what I noticed is that so much of this is really tied to traditional workplace structures, which is you know where most people work, which was honestly just built for and by men and even women who are successful. You know, we're still operating within a system that rewards qualities of assertiveness and boldness and and, and what is traditionally considered masculine. Um, And it rewards that in men and it punishes those same qualities in women. And it's not that we're out here being explicit about it. Nobody's like, I don't like women who are bold. You know, nobody's going to explicitly say that. But those are the kinds of biases that are kind of operating under the surface unconsciously or subconsciously. And I think what I want to do is bring some of that to the surface and say, you know, the gender discrimination we see today may not be as explicit as it used to be, but it doesn't mean it isn't there. And I think it's important that if we're going to have conversations about, you know, closing gaps and pay and wealth, whatever, we, we have to be honest about what's happening instead of making, you know, these like flawed assumptions that women are simply like less interested in high paying careers or are not asking for raises or are not staying in the workforce after they have children, because a lot of what the research says just totally disproves those narratives. So it it really is about addressing both sides of the interaction. And I, I feel like this might be like some of us discovering that even though, you know, we don't consider ourselves race biased. I have friends of color, yet we've recently discovered that we still harbor these biased thoughts or that we're acting subconsciously in biased ways. And it's a really a horrible and painful thing to have to contemplate it. And it requires a ton of humility. So what would you say to that? I mean, for example, some of the women that you interviewed who had offers rescinded for negotiating, were those offers rescinded by women? Yes, some of them were. And I I do... I know we alluded to this earlier, and I do want to say it really explicitly, both men and women, anybody or, or anyone of like any gender identity in a system of patriarchy, everybody is operating under patriarchal norms. Like it's, it's, it's about a system of rewards and penalties more so than it is. I'm a man doing this against a woman. You know, it's everybody's enforcing and rewarding, uh, you know, like traditionally masculine behaviors in men and generally penalizing those things in women. Again, not explicitly, but these are like the implicit biases that are just in the systems we've built over time. And then this is not me saying like, shame on anybody. We all, I do it. You do it. We all do it. We're not trying to do it, but we just have to understand that like, this is the way that we've grown up. We've been socialized kind of like the milestones things, right? Like we grow up knowing how to respond to the way somebody, uh, what happens when somebody gets engaged or gets pregnant. Uh, we don't necessarily have a script 
for everything else. And I think that's how we need to think about this, you know, when we're talking about women's ambition, particularly for women of color. Like, yeah, what do I need to do better to make sure that these biases that I might not be aware of, but clearly are happening because these patterns continue to show up in both anecdotal evidence and in research-based evidence that like, what am I doing that that's like perpetrating this and what can I do differently? Right. And so I don't mean to oversimplify the issue, but I want to ask you, if you want to go one step further, do you have a recommended prescription? Are there solutions that you know about other than just admitting it, talking about it, getting out in the open? Yeah. So it's so, so difficult for, to be prescriptive when it comes to, you know, any kind, anything that's so hugely systemic and, you know, problematic. But what I will say is that, you know, in speaking to people about, their own experience. I think one of the things that really struck me as I was interviewing this woman who, one of the women who had her job offer is rescinded after a negotiation. And she said, you know, everybody says that the worst you can hear is no in a negotiation. But the reality is the worst they can do is gaslight you, demean you, tell you you don't have the the skills and experience that you do give you imposter syndrome that you never had before hurt your confidence. And that really struck me. That really struck me because I thought about the narratives that I have even, you know, kind of perpetrated as somebody who's like, you know, don't let anybody tell you what to do. You do you. And I think part of this, you know, and again, this isn't like super prescriptive, but I think it's just really thinking critically about the way we move forward is part of it is me and all of us being like, oh, wait, how can I take whatever I'm saying, whatever I'm saying about negotiation, whatever I'm saying about how to show up in the workplace, however I'm speaking to women and take the reality of these experiences and these biases that are still hurting people into account. And so instead of just assuming that a woman like this is just born with imposter syndrome, it's like inherent to her. What if I am now like making this assumption instead of like, assuming that I reframe the assumption as, oh, this confidence issue, this imposter syndrome is a result of workplace trauma. It is a result of lived experience. It is a natural response to the way she has been treated. And that now reframes the way I am speaking to that woman, not as someone saying, you know, just who cares what anybody says uh, you do you well actually, no, that's actually not great advice because at the end of the day, there are people whose biases are going to affect you and what is possible for you and what opportunities are available to you. So one thing that came up for this woman was like, okay, how do we recognize earlier on in the interview process, whether this is an environment where where your ambition is going to be rewarded or whether Mm. your ambition is going to be penalized? Because obviously she doesn't want to work in an environment where a job offer is going to get rescinded when she tries to negotiate salary. But like that's, it's pretty crushing to go through, you know, eight rounds of interviews and really invest yourself in this potential future and then to learn that. Right. So what are some of the signs I can look out for sooner to recognize an environment where I'm not going to be championed? Can I go on to LinkedIn and see whether that uh, company is really committed to their diversity, equity and inclusion statement that they put on the front 
page of their website, right? Like, is their leadership team reflective of what they say their values are? Are there people like me in that company? Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of a little bit of what I've been learning throughout this process is like, you know, it's, it's really not on individuals to solve for these systemic problems, but Mm -hmm. by us individuals being aware of them, maybe we can learn how to protect ourselves, how to better navigate, how to have better conversations around these things. And then when we do have positions hour, can we advocate for the other people in the room? Hillary here with a quick timeout to tell you how we can work together to improve and even make your financial life 100% organized and hassle-free. As a listener, you probably know my story. I made every money mistake in the book until I finally figured out the power of learning how to change my brain, including my beliefs about money. This allowed me to multiply my wealth to over eight figures. And since then, I've created a done-for-you comprehensive course to teach other business owners exactly how I did it. I've also been a wealth and financial advisor to women and couples for more than 20 years now. If you think we may be a great fit to work together, go to hillaryhendershot.com and just start a conversation. We provide fee-only fiduciary advice to our clients, which means our clients never ever pay commissions. And we do only what's in your best interest, just like it's supposed to be for all financial advisors. If you want to see how my team and I measure up as financial advisors, check out our Yelp reviews at hillaryhendershot.com forward slash Yelp. All right, let's get back to the show. The uh, you do you type coaching is um, it, it's, it can be confidence building, but of course it can't be universal because some community has to accept you. Otherwise you're sitting on a rock precipice by yourself, right? Like exactly. You have to find exactly. your people. <laughs> yeah, it's that's well said. And that, that's kind of what I'm getting at. And as you can probably tell, as I've been talking about this, you know, I've been researching this for two years, but I've only started to to publish and and speak on podcasts about it oh. in the last couple of months. So, you know, I'm, st- I'm still figuring it out because it's really complicated and it's really messy. And I, I allow myself to talk about it without the perfect talking points, because I think I think that's important that it is a little bit messy because this stuff is so nuanced. And so often when we're talking about advice, we're speaking in binaries, we're speaking with so so much simplicity. And the fact is like this, that just doesn't work. And I'm so tired of that kind of advice. And I think it's doing us a disservice. And so I think talking through it with you and hearing you clarify what I'm saying, like that's, that's the work. That's what we need to be doing. Well, and as a coach, I mean, I have to sometimes hold myself back from giving the Nike coaching, which I call it, just do it. And it's the same, it's in that same family of just do it. Well, if, Mm -hmm. if just do it was going to work for her, the person I'm coaching, you know, maybe she would have done it 10 weeks ago or whatever. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And I do think, I mean, let me just say that, you know, even my family has related to me, like I'm competitive and they use the word competitive. And what they don't say is that there's something wrong with that. Mm. It comes with like this disdain or this eye roll. Oh, well, that's just Hillary. She's just being competitive. And I feel almost gaslit. It's like, 
Yes. How do you respond to that? Because I hear what you're saying and I can respond to what you're saying, but it's tough for me to respond to what you're not saying. And I do feel hurt. I feel judged and rejected and competitiveness is part of my nature. And there's a real cost to that. Like, you know, we always say, oh, okay. So ambitious, competitive women are, are unlikable, big deal, but actually, no, there, it's not just being labeled unlikable or difficult to work with or whatever else people want to either imply or say outright about us, it has very real consequences and costs. Yeah. And that is not right. The only, you know, ambition and competitiveness and boldness, assertiveness, these are all qualities that are rewarded in men. The only reason they are penalized is if they are in women. And that is nothing but sexism. And like, it is not me saying, we don't like women, but that is what people are effectively saying. And it is just as destructive right. as being explicit. So let's talk about, cause we have a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this show. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I think it's interesting that you said you've been able to skirt the issue personally for, to, the, yeah. to a large extent because you work for yourself. Mm-hmm. So, and I think as a self-employed person, you do have the opportunity to create your own community. You determine your team. Once you get to a level of success, you can even say no to customers, right? No, I don't want to work for you. Yes. What are the lessons about what you're discovering about the ambition penalty that apply to business owners? Hmm. That's a good question. I do think this is probably true for people who work in, in traditional jobs as well, but Certainly as a business owner who has clients, um, that's basically what allows me to be in business. I think the thing that makes my ambition palatable is that I'm using it in service of the goals and objectives of my client. Right. And so if I can frame what is interesting, what is good for me through the bottom line of somebody else, then yeah, like how can they argue with that? Right. If my ambition makes them have better results, make more money, win, be successful, then that's a win for them too. So, you know, it's unfortunate that we would even have to think of it that way, that like the ambition wouldn't just be an inherent good because, you know, (laughs) like as long as you're not cutting people down for the sake of your own ambition, I have no problem with however ambitious somebody is. I, I think, I think it's a great thing, but unfortunately part of this conversation is just recognizing that this bias exists. And so, you know, we are all navigating this world in which this bias exists. So what do we do is like, okay, it has to become an asset. And since most people don't see it as an asset, well, how do we frame it that way for them? We frame it that way for them by defining our ambition through their communal benefit, their net win. And you can do this in the workplace too, right? It's when you, when you wind up advocating for yourself, you don't use the I language, you use the we language or the you language. What are you doing for the company's bottom line? How are you improving metrics and results for them, even if you're the one doing it, even if it serves your own ambition, uh, at the end of the day, if you can frame it in those communal terms, that is more palatable. Yeah. 
It's interesting. And that circles the conversation back to the topic you and I love so much, which is money, which tends to be the <laughs> universal pacifier. I did have a client one time saying it was a male, a man. He said to me something like, you know, you're competing with this other person who's also bidding for the job, but I, I'm going to pick you because you're more ambitious. Mm. And so there was something about my ambition that I was able to translate to Hillary's going to work her butt off so that I'm successful. Mm-hmm. Right? And I thought, well, there there's a good fit for it. That That's where it works. Let's transition just a little bit. I want to mm-hmm. talk about because the ambition is closely related to confidence and you, I've mm-hmm. always thought. But uh, of all the entrepreneurs I know, the nature of what you do and how you do it is you have to hustle. You have to mm-hmm. advocate for yourself a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're in a more sort of cutthroat kind of industry than I am, I think. And now, and my, I, I, in, in, my, in and in every career, success builds on success. But I think you have to advocate for yourself every day, probably. Tell me, <laughs> where do you find your confidence? What are the things that build your confidence most? What's your most successful uh, tactics? I think for me, I, I'm very unafraid of being rejected. And that is a a superpower. It feels a little bit trite to say because like everybody talks about rejection all the time. And I don't want to fetishize rejection because I think that's the flip (laughs) side of the coin. Sometimes there's like this obsession with like get rejected, fail, fail fast. And I understand the sentiment of that, but I do think it gets the messaging gets a little bit perverted. Sometimes the goal is not to be rejected. The goal is to win, but like to win, the rejection is part of the process. And that's kind of how I always frame it is like, I know I'm going to get a lot of no's before I get a yes, but I have to get the no's to get to the yes. So I think that framework has always served me because I know that like, okay, it's not this one, then I'm like, okay, one step closer, one no closer to my yes. And that helps me think of um, the rejection, not as a kind of like finality, but just as like a stepping stone to where I need to get to go next. Now, I will say one thing I thought about a lot during the pandemic was how do you know when the no is a sign to just keep going? That's a stepping stone or that it's a sign that you need to pivot and change something like do you pivot or do you double down? And that's a really hard question. Not saying I have an answer to it. Art, not saying. science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's where I think community really comes in handy. Having people around me who give me really honest feedback. I am very, also realizing I had a lot of realizations during the pandemic, one of which it's very hard to find people who are willing to be honest with you and who are willing to give you feedback that is, that is uh, constructive and critical. I think the combination of how I think about rejection and having a a trusted group that does that for me Mm -hmm. has been like, just, I I literally couldn't do what I do without it. So do you have a constructive criticism group? I do. I do. We we meet every week. And, um, Oh, one, one of whom is uh, my business partner on this event that I host. Uh, so it started just the two of us. And, um, and it's, it has grown and, uh, I don't know, it's, it's so refreshing to hear how other people perceive your work, no matter if it's good or bad, what the response is, as long as it's, it feels honest because it is 
so impossible. I think everyone who's creating work to get out of your own head and how you see it. And yes. so you don't and, have an unbiased view of your own work product. It, it, exactly. And there, and there's just so much somebody can bring to see the disconnect sometimes between your work and then how they know you as a person. And I think that is like, insanely valuable. I mean, obviously you're somebody who coaches, so this is something you can offer too. I think one of the things that has been really helpful about having my a group of people who I do this with is we're also friends. So it's wonderful. Still, to, huh? <laughs> yeah. It's wonderful to have people who know you to, to, to understand you as a person and your values. And then how does that translate into your work product and, and how much, you know, you, you will say how much of it you do or don't want to be in your work product. And then they can be like, well, you're not showing up as that at all. And you have to be willing to be able to take that. And that yeah. can be hard, it but it takes for, something. Yeah. But having, but having that group that I implicitly trust and I know has my best interests at heart, that makes however harsh the feedback totally fine to take because then they're going to support me as I try to figure out what that next step is. So I'd say like the, those two things have been kind of my quote unquote secret sauce for being able to continue as a entrepreneur. So now I'm super curious about this thing. So <laughs> just really quick, do you present some work product or ask them to evaluate a video or a blog, something you've done recently? And then the, is there a framework for their feedback? So it's very unstructured <laughs> oh. because, because the relationship is very blurry, right? It's, it's partly, it, it's based on friendship. Uh, but it's also people who are in a similar space. We all have different kinds of businesses, but we all okay. do somewhat similar things. So if I, let's say I'm working on an article and I'm like, I'm stuck, I can send it to them. And they're like, okay, they can give me line by line edits. They can say, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. They say, oh, this actually doesn't fit in alignment with anything that you said you were trying to do right now in your business. Good example. We were talking a couple of weeks ago about social media and just like the enormous brain drain and like life drain and energy drain that it is for all of us. And I was like, you know what? I, I feel like not having as big a social presence as I want is really holding me back from like when I do publish a podcast or do publish an article, it doesn't get the traction I want it to because I haven't built the social following. So I feel like I should double down on building the social following. And then one of my friends in the group said, you know, Stephanie, that's totally legitimate, but think about the opportunity cost of your time and energy. I'm somebody who's very tired all the time. I have very poor focus, really bad ADHD. <laughs> I get maybe two hours of work done in a day, maybe. So for me, it, she made me think of it through the framework of like, if you are going to take your precious two quality work hours a day and spend it on social media, what are you giving up in doing that? And I was like, oh, well, maybe pitching an article that goes to Bloomberg that then kind of goes mini viral, which is what happened with my ambition penalty piece. So I was like, the valid, even though my social following, I would like to be bigger at the end of the day, I would rather be taking my precious two hours a day and spending it on pitching and writing pieces that I think have viral potential and I think are really well researched. And I think, you know, really reflect the kind of product work product I want to be creating at the end of the day. So that's the kind of conversation that happens. That sounds amazing. And yeah, you have to have a lot of courage and confidence to participate in a group like that. And a lot of like 
partition, like you're in this room now. And Mm -hmm. then later we're friends, we're having a glass of wine and you probably don't have permission to say stuff like that to me after my second glass of wine. (laughs) (laughs) I will say the group has changed over time and it has evolved like with new people, people coming and going, it's not for everybody. So I think it's also about being willing to play with the structure. You know, I've, I have been in so many feedback groups over the years and this is the one that has stuck and and you know, it's iterative. I I don't have like the perfect structure or solution for any of it, but I think just like being willing to be honest with people and find like either it feels right or it doesn't and being willing to listen to that, that goes a long way. Well, given you are only going to work two hours today, apparently, (laughs) I thank you for spending part of one of those hours with us. There is a question I really want to ask you. So I promise to wrap up after this. Yeah. Uh, You had published that during the pandemic, you had to renegotiate, I think, an apartment lease, I assume, to lower overhead. And then recently that you hired four people to work in your business. So I'm perceiving there was a turnaround to what do you attribute the pivot? Tell us about that story. Yeah. So at the beginning of the pandemic, like everybody, you know, there was just so much uncertainty and confusion in my business, but also in my household. My it was husband, scary. It was terrifying for absolutely everybody. Right. It's like something big is happening. We don't know the implications and we don't know how long it will last. Good luck. Right. So one of the very scary things is my husband is a Broadway stagehand. So his last day of work was March 12th, 2020. He went back to the theater this week in August, 2021 for the first time. Uh, And that is still part-time. The show doesn't open till October, 2021. So we obviously did not know that it was going to be a year and a half of him not having work, uh, but it was jarring in that moment, even with a four week shutdown. <laughs> At the same time, in the four weeks uh, of the initial shutdown, I lost about $100,000 in projected revenue because I had been do I had a lot of uh, video shoots scheduled out for the for the rest of the year. They were all, all canceled. And it was just completely disorienting. Like for everybody, you know, everyone had their own version of being disoriented. This was my version of being disoriented. So we went from my husband losing his job and me basically losing all my revenue in 4 weeks. And we were like okay, we have emergency fund savings, but there is so much uncertainty that I don't know how long it needs to last. I had more than six months of emergency savings, but I didn't have like three years worth. And it's already at this point, Benny, (laughs) a year and a half. So when we got about three, four months into the pandemic, I started trying to uh, renegotiate with, thank you. I started like really just thinking really critically about what, do we like drastically need to change? I think initially we're like, okay, we're cutting out all our non-essentials, but then housing is still an essential. So then the next step was, okay, our housing might be essential, but our Manhattan apartment is not essential. <laughs> the Manhattan apartment version of our housing is not essential. So that's kind of when we went into phase two. And then phase three was the fall of 2020. And uh, I think you know, I can't say that it was something I really did differently so much as that, oh, people, businesses started spending money again and they started bringing their media budgets back and their, their ad budgets back. And I have been working like a fiend (laughs) ever since. (laughs) I bet. 
So I was going to um, call you a hustler. I wasn't sure if that would offend you. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. But now it's funny because I've been like, I worked like nonstop from September last year to July of this summer. And I am exhausted. Like a lot of people, I'm in a little bit of a burnout mode, which is unusual for me because I am pretty good about managing my balance. But I've had a little bit of like the scarcity mindset now of like, yeah man, we were positioned as basically as good as it gets. We had tons of savings, dual high incomes, everything. And it still felt like the bottom fell out from under us, even though we were okay. It just, it was emotionally scarring. And I'm still kind of grappling with building up the fact that, hey, your systems worked as they were designed to work. Your emergency fund worked as it was designed to work. You need to just rebuild and trust, but it's hard. It's really hard. Surrounding yourself with cash can truly be a panacea. So congrats <laughs> on, doing. <laughs> on lowering your expenses and having that curveball account or emergency savings. Stephanie, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Uh, where can people find you? I'm at stephanieoconnell.com and the podcast is called Money Confidential. Money Confidential. Great. Thank you, Stephanie. As we wrap things up here for today, I need to review with you the things I have to disclose as a fiduciary financial advisor offering wealth management services through my firm, Hendershot Wealth Management, LLC. You should know that the opinions I express on Profit Boss Radio are my own and they can change. The content I provide in the show is for general education. It's not intended as specific investment advice, nor do I recommend any specific financial products. Unlike how I roll at home with my husband, I can't guarantee that my statements, opinions, or forecasts are always 100% right. Of course, I wish I could peek into that proverbial crystal ball, but so far, I haven't found it. Past performance is not indicative of future results. I talk a lot about indexes and I want you to know you can't actually buy an index because of course when you take a list of companies and create a product that allows people to invest in those companies, there are fees and expenses involved that reduce returns. Remember, all investing involves risk, which as you know, means you could lose your money. And I have to tell you that there is no guarantee that any investment plan or strategy will be successful. And that should keep my lawyers happy. Have a great day.